Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 22. While you're turning, you will note that there's a new format in your bulletin, and I just want to say that the intent is for you to carry this home. This is more and more of a take-home. For instance, be aware of the Build Your Own Sunday tonight following the outdoor evening worship service, which will be out on the ball field. And uh, take this home with you so that you've got a record of everything that is happening and what needs to happen. And you'll know we have a new organ left over from the Dr. Jeremiah conference, the David Jeremiah conference. They left it here. If any of you got 45000 in your pocket and you'd like to help us get a new organ, please see me. I'll stay as long as you want after this service to talk to you and work out terms even. Uh, and we'll even excuse you from your tithe the rest of this year if you'd like to do that. How's that for an offer? But anyway, Revelation chapter 22. And one other thing, be praying for the great, one of the greatest evangelistic outreaches we have in our church, which is VBS. Pray for Vacation Bible School next week. What a great privilege. In the last chapter of the book of Revelation, all the apocalypse is done. The revelation is done of prophetic things. Verse 6, Then the angel said to me, the antecedent of he goes back to verse 9 of chapter 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, that angel said, now watch, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. And the remainder of the book, the conclusion of this great book of Scripture, of the Bible, the remainder is God's tying it all together. Nothing else is revealed about prophecy. The end is the end. We're in heaven. God is a light. There's no more need of a, of a candle or light of the sun. But now, before he closes the book, God says, let me just kind of summarize things for you. It's interesting that this should come on Father's Day. I don't manufacture these things, but it struck me that God the Heavenly Father had been working for 18, maybe 15 to 1800 years to disclose to us who he was in the Word of God. Do you realize what's, this is the end of the revelation? No more scriptures were written. No more books from Paul. No more books from John. This is the end. And that is why this last chapter is so filled with over and over ideas about the words of this book. The Father has been disclosing himself to his creation as a father discloses himself to his children. God, the heavenly Father, has been disclosing himself to his creation, and this is the end of that revelation. After all, isn't that what this book is called? Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of God. You know, as a father working hard with four children, trying to raise four children while my wife was trying to raise me, uh, it has been an interesting experience 
for my children to become adults and say, Dad, I never knew this about you. I never saw this about you. Now, all relationships require at least three things. I have not known any relationship that didn't require at least these three things. The first is time. Now, I'm here to tell you that I don't care what some of the modern writers say. You can't be a good father ultimately without some time. It just takes time. And I've heard all the discussion about quantity versus quality, and I'm telling you, folks, there's no substitute for quantity. Now, quality and quantity go together, but you need time to build a relationship. If you don't believe that, just leave your wife for five years and come back and see where she is. You're in for a surprise. Did you know that? Secondly, all relationships need service. I must demonstrate servanthood if I'm going to build a relationship with anybody. A mother serves her family. A father serves his family. Somebody said, did you ever take up golf? You know why I never, I mean, I played golf maybe once every two years. Gene Kelly would come by and say, let's go play golf. But do you know one reason why I never spent more time in golf? Because raising a church and raising four children never left me much time for golf. I could play tennis for an hour, work up a, uh, let me see, I don't want to say that, uh, get a good workout that required perspiration, and I could do that an hour, but golf four and five hours? When I knew my wife was back there with four kids hanging on to her skirt tail and me out there enjoying the birds and the bees and the green and the ride, and the, that was always hard for me, always hard. Find a way to demonstrate that you serve your child. Now, the third thing in building a relationship is self-disclosure. It's communication. It's letting the other person in the relationship know who you are. Do you realize that as the book of Revelation comes to a close, God is saying, I've been working for all these years to let you know who I am? That's why I revealed to the holy prophets truth about me. That's why the words were written down in a book. I've been unveiling who I am. And that remains for every one of us to remove the shell around us as God did in Scripture and say, this is what I'm really like. It is what happens when you're on a trip and your wife and you're lost in a strange city and your wife says, why don't we stop at the gas station? And she says that five times before you stop. And finally, you stop at the local Exxon and say, I have a general idea where it is, but I've sort of gotten turned around. You're disclosing something about yourself. Dads, have you ever sat down with your children and said, son, here are the decisions I made. Here's the way I fell in love with your mom. Here's the way I was saved. Here's the way I was called to do this. Here's how I got, here's how God led me. See, every communication is an attempt at self-disclosure.
God has worked hard at letting you know who he is and what he's like, and he did it in the words of this book. After all, isn't that really what we're about, knowing God? Jesus said this. This is life eternal, that ye might, what? Experiment with God? No. Know the Father. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to know the Father. And that's, Father's what we're all about, is letting our children know us. You want a good experiment this afternoon? Rick, go home and ask each of your children, Emily, Casey, and Sally, to write down one paragraph about who they think their daddy really is. That will be a revelation. Now, get ready, because it'll be a surprise. Now, that is what I believe this last chapter is about. Now, watch. There are three themes here that I want to touch. Theme one is the importance of the word. Theme two is the irretrievability of the lost. And theme three is the invitation of the holy. Now, I don't want this to be a dry theological lecture, but I do want you to understand what the Word of God is about. So let's jump into it. Now listen to me. Theologians talk about general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is nature. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork, and that is general revelation. Everybody who can see sees God in nature. So that Romans 1 says, the things of the invisible God are revealed by what is seen, the works of his hands, so that we are without excuse. That's general revelation. And even if you were blind, you are exposed to God's creation by what you hear and experience with the other senses. All the world, that's why they call it general revelation, all the world has an opportunity to know something about God. But then the, the theologians speak of special revelation. His words and his works reveal God or disclose who God is, who God the Father is to us so that we know how to relate to him. And this right here, special revelation, is the center of most controversy among Baptists, among Methodists, among Presbyterians, between evangelicals of whatever denominational stripe, and uh, between those who would move away from the concept of special revelation. Now, when you read all this about the Bible, don't you dare say, I very rarely ever talk to you about the controversy in the Southern Baptist Convention. Is that right or wrong? But now I want you to understand, don't ever minimize that. It is very, very basic, and here is what the controversy is about. In special revelation, there is the living word, and there is the written word. The written word is the what? It is the scripture. It is the Bible that is now being closed. The living word is the logos of God. It is Jesus Christ. Now, the controversy goes like this. That as we applied German rationalism to theology, people got less and less confidence in the Bible. They doubted more and more of the Bible. And so they relegated the place of the Bible to a place of lesser importance. And they said... Since we can all agree on what the Bible says, 
what is important is the living word, the incarnation of Christ. So they gradually moved from emphasizing the scripture, the written word of God. The Bible said, holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, we who believe in the infallibility of the Bible believe that God spoke through prophets to write down just what he wanted them to write. That's the written word. God speaks in propositions. And on the other side of those who say, oh, no, you can't put truth in a sentence. They call that, you, you propositional revelationists are fundamentalists. And you worship the Bible. That's bibliolatry. Oh, no, no, no. I don't worship the Bible. I worship the Christ revealed in the Bible, but how would I know who he was if I didn't have a source of disclosure, which is the written word of God? And that's what separates evangelical Baptist, Southern Baptists, from moderate and liberal Southern Baptists, by and large. That's what separates evangelical Presbyterians from moderate and liberal Presbyterians. The Bible is not all that important. It's, it, you worship the Bible. God doesn't speak. You can't put truth in sentences. Well, I don't know how else you communicate truth. I, I think that that is the whole point of this passage. If you walk down the passages, look at all the references to the written word. Here they are. Verse 6. These, what's the next word, class? Words are faithful and true. Thoughts, ideas? No, no. These words are faithful and true. All right, go on to verse 7. I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of what? Any book? This book. What book of which revelation is the last? Next verse, verse 9. Then he said to me, don't worship me. See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of what? This book. I don't just follow the example of Christ. I keep the words of this book, this Bible, this inspired word, this written word. Notice the admonitions in Revelation. Again, verse 10. Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book. Boy, get off this subject, John. You want to say, wait a minute. No, it's all for a reason. He's ending up the record of God's self-disclosure, God's revelation of who he is. And he says, it's in the book. Verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life. I am a communicator of the truth of this book. I preach this book. I teach this book. I write about this book. I don't have any other ministry if this book is gone. Always tell what a preacher is really like by asking him, what does he believe about the book? I don't make any apologies. They laugh at me because I'm a preacher. I'm a preacher of the book. That's a source of truth. And when you, when you downplay the written word of God and make it just open to anybody and just part of it is inspired, the Bible contains the word of God, but it isn't the word of God. If you say it's the word of God, then you worship the Bible. Oh, no, 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 no. 
but your approach to the Bible affects how you interpret it. You, you've often wondered, well, what's the difference when you go into a church, when you're on vacation, and the preacher reads one line out of one verse and then shuts his Bible and preaches a whole 11 and a half minutes? And you wonder, what in the world did he say? I'll tell you what's the difference. Some preachers believe the book, and some don't believe the book. Some preach the book, and some don't preach the book. Some will preach out of the book, and some will get as far away as they can from the book. I don't make any apologies. This church is about the Word of God. And I take this seriously. I preach from it. I teach it. The Holy Men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They spoke words. Those words were written down in Isaiah. Those words were written down in the Psalms. Those words were written down in the Chronicles. The book has been written. That is why the Old Testament prophets didn't make any distinction. Over and over again, you read it. Thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. What I'm saying, the Lord is saying. Now, how can they write that? And so we have a chance to test, did what they say come true? That's why at the end of this book, he said, boy, seal the words of this prophecy because everything that the prophets wrote about is coming true. Amen? The book, the written word of God. You say, yeah, but... but uh, what would be so bad about not having it written down? And what did they do before they wrote it down? They got in trouble. That's what. <laughs> Hold your hand here and go back to 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22. Josiah is a good king. And as he becomes king, he was only eight when he became king. Can you imagine that? How many eight-year-olds in the, in the service today? Raise your hand if you're eight-year-old. Can you imagine Josiah was his age when he became king? Tom, have him stand. Just, just have. I want you. There's an eight-year-old. Isn't he a handsome eight-year-old? Look at that tie. Boy, he's a great eight-year-old. Aren't you lucky to have the daddy you've got? Yes, you are. Now, that's how, that's Josiah when he became the king, and he reigned for 31 years. Okay. King, you can be seated, king. Thank you. I made him king for a day. <laughs> his daddy thought he was. Now watch verse 8. When they went to rebuild the temple, Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. It had been lost. The written law of God had been lost. What do you do without a written word? Well, they passed it on verbally. And as they passed it on verbally from generation to generation, Something got lost in the verbal oral transmission of the Bible. It always does. You ever played that gossip game where you stand around a room? You can start it say, I love Josie. And by the time it gets around to the end of the room, it's order a pizza from Domino's. I mean, it's crazy, the nature of human nature. We hear through our filters. And that's what happened to the truth of God. The laws of God were hidden and passed orally. And so Hilkiah gave the book in verse 8 to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan sent the scribe. The scribe went to the king, brought him the money, and then showed him the book in verse 10. And when, when they read the book and saw what the book said, written down, communicating the truth of God, oh, the king said, go inquire of the Lord for me, 
for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And Josiah said, no wonder we're in such terrible spiritual condition. The book has been hidden. The book has been lost. What was written was gone. And our fathers were not even practicing the Passover. They weren't practicing the feast. They had lost the truth of God, the concept of truth. Boy, this is such an important chapter. And that's what's happened in our society. As we lost the concept of truth. Out of the Word of God. See, philosophers and theologians make decisions and start things which don't affect society for 30, 40, 50 years. We are right now bearing socially the fruits of theological and philosophical changes that occurred 40 and 50 years ago and were going on in our seminaries and we didn't know it. But now you wonder, why have we lost the, lost the concept of truth? Why is everything relative? Why are there no rights or wrongs? Why do our children think everything is relative? I'll tell you why. It's the fruit of, a, of an approach to truth that downplays the written, recorded, propositional disclosure of who God is in His Holy Word. And that we have paid a terrible price for. And what's going on in Methodism and Presbyterianism and in Baptist life is to restore the place of the written word. When you forget the law, you forget truth. And that's what happens in churches that are dying. That's why Kelly wrote his book, Why Conservative Churches Are Growing and Liberal Churches Are Dying. It all comes back to the concept of truth, the written word of God. I need about an hour and a half to preach this. If you'll stay, I'll do it. Just tell those other folks to make their way in here the best way they can. We've only touched, we've only scratched the surface. Because you see, one of the arguments is, yeah, but you got all these translations. I believe in the King James. I went to preach at a church. And, and he wanted me to be sure to preach from the King James. <laughs> don't, don't preach from anything else. Brother, King James is long since outdated. Did you know that? It was translated from the Textus Receptus in the early 16th century. Since then, we have 37, 3,800 uncials now, hand printings of the Scripture that predate the Textus Receptus. We have hundreds of copies of texts, which we can go back all the way, and now they're, they're digging up Bethsaida. The town, did you see that in the paper this morning? The town that was destroyed by an earthquake in 115 is the most nearly it will be the most, uh, the, the town, resto the restored town that is most nearly exactly what Jesus visited in his day. And we're going to, I'll tell you, every uncial and every text that has been found has only supported the Word of God. And we've got a lot better sources to get to what the original writers actually said than the Textus Receptus from which came the King James. Now, I knew, I used the new King James. I'm not knocking the King James. It's just that a lot of people can't understand it. And the words are not the newest and the freshest. So somebody said, but you don't have the originals. So what difference does it make whether you have the originals or not? I'll tell you what difference it makes. What you believe about the original will determine your posture towards the entire truth of God. And so we read the Bible in different translations and the, and the body of Christ comes together to agree what it's on.
I can't, re I, I don't have a very good picture of my grandma courts, but I can remember to this day the first time I ever remember recognizing that was my grandmother, and that first impression will always stay in my mind. And it, it, it uh, influences my attitude towards my grandmother because of what I remember when I first saw her. And even though she's died and gone to heaven, I don't deny that she ever lived. I have that wonderful memory, and that memory influences me, and it changes my perspective. If I, I don't have a picture of Jesus Christ, but I don't doubt that he lived. Amen? <laughs> I don't have to have the original, but my attitude towards the original does determine how I handle the truth of God. And so there's a distinct connection between the put down of the written word and today's social problems all the way down the line. Doubt everything. Somebody said, and I love this, <laughs> never put a question mark where God puts a period. <laughs> now, let me say that again. Never put a question mark where God puts a period. Isn't that great? Some people approach, well, this is not true. It's like a man who's out of a church that is a, a, a church that doesn't believe the Bible the way we do. He finally said to me, it's not long ago, he said, you know, courts, I have come to believe that there is a difference in us. Well, I said, how about that? Cowabunga. <laughs> how about that? He said, yeah. He said, there really is a difference. You believe in all that junk about uh, Jonah and the whale. And see, we, we just don't believe that. It's not necessary. See, that's neo-orthodoxy. It's not necessary. Whether there's a God up there or not, you don't have to believe all those dumb stories to believe in God. You can believe in God based on your experience and the general idea of truth and whether the miracles are true or not. You know, even though Jesus talked about them as if they were true, it's not really necessary that they be true. Hogwash. To me, if Jesus assumed that there was a man named Jonah and there was a whale big enough to swallow him, then I will go with Jesus and believe what he believed. And then there's the living word. And notice how the living word is revealed in this passage. Look at all the... And that's why I think he, he is so careful. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming speedily, and my reward is with... He is a rewarder. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning of creation. He's at the end of creation. He was there when God spun the world into existence. He's there at the end. I am uh, the, the first and the last. Again, verse 16, I am Jesus, the Messiah. And I am the root and the offspring of David. And I am the bright and the morning star. I herald a brand new age. I think that Jesus is trying to say, I am the living Christ, and I'm supporting the written word, and there is no conflict between believing in the written word and the living word. In fact, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the written word. I came to fulfill it. And he's in perfect harmony. Don't let anybody tell you there's a conflict between the living word, Jesus, the person of Jesus, the historical Jesus, and the written word of God. The written world word reveals the living word, and the living word fulfills the written word. How else would you know about Jesus if you didn't have the written word of God? I don't worship the Bible, but I love this book. And you know, over the years, as I've 
been a biblical preacher for many years, 35 years now. And people ask me, why do you go to a verse of Scripture to prove your point? Because I don't have anything to say if, I don't come, if it doesn't come from the Scripture. An expository preacher is not one who dreams up an idea and then he looks for a Scripture upon which he can impose his idea. Do you understand the difference? I struggle with this text. I work hours on this text. I read it from every angle I can. And my question is, Lord, what are you saying about yourself out of this text? And that's the expository preacher. He lets the Scripture speak to the truth to disclose who God the Father is. And the more you know about God, the more you're going to love Him. And the more you know about God, the more you're going to trust Him. And we have revealed to us about God in the precious Word of God. Now, I'm on point one, and it's 10.09. How can I handle my other point? Let me just touch my other points, all right? Y'all getting hungry already, aren't you? What time do you eat breakfast this morning? (laughs) There's a second theme here, and I'll just touch on it. The irretrievability of the lost, verse 11. This is an enormously significant passage. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. At the end of time, the decisions you have made to serve God or not to serve God are done. And the people who have rejected God's efforts to share with them who he is are irretrievably lost. They're gone. There is no other chance. You know, when I was a young pastor, I thought the whole world revolved around me, and I had to save everybody that called me at 3.30 in the morning. And I nearly killed myself doing that. And I had to come to the place in my ministry where I resigned as emperor of the world. And I sent my resignation in and said, I just have to acknowledge that I can't make everybody a Christian. I can't help everybody do right. Now, listen, folks, I want you to understand this. There are some people who will reject everything God shares about himself, everything he does. And you share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you can build a relation, and you can love them, you can pray for them, you can work on them, but they're never going to come to Christ. Now, I don't know who they are. God knows who they are. Jesus told the 70 when he sent them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom in the gospels, he said, if you go into a village and nobody receives you, what did he tell them to do? Shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. And that was a wonderfully freeing truth to me that when I have loved a person as far as I can go, I've got to turn them over to God and go to the next town. When I have loved a sinner as far as I can love him, I've got to shake the dust off my feet. I can't be responsible if he rejects God. And that's what this verse is. Whoever is unjust, let him be unjust still. There comes a time when God's grace will no longer strive with man or with woman or with children. You say, what about my family? Well, I I think on my children I would never give up. I told my children many a time when they were growing up, there's nothing you can do to make me quit loving you. I've got a simple three-point test. Here's the three-point test as to whether I shake the dust off or I stick with somebody trying to bring them to repentance. The first test is this. Do they hear what I'm saying? 
And when they stop hearing, you shake the dust off your feet and turn them over to the Lord and go on. Secondly, are they humbly teachable? Do they give any indication that they're learning anything from your love of them, your encouragement of them, your witnessing to them, your instruction of them, your, your chastening of them, your exhortation to them? As long as a person is teachable, I don't care if he falls on his nose, I'll stay with him until the end. I'll go to the cross. I'll go to the wall with him. The third. Does he hear? Is he teachable? Does he ever take any initiative towards the Lord? And those are my three tests that I've come to accept. And if a person doesn't show me some of those, I just have to, there comes a time you have to shake the dust off your feet. Have you ever given and given and given and given and given and you wonder, what else can I give? Shake the dust off. At the end of time, God will say, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. God's done everything he can. God doesn't batter us down. He doesn't beat us into submission. He doesn't force us to be saved. He discloses who he is. He shows us his grace. He shows us his love. And then he waits for a response from us. You know, if we learn that, you save yourself a lot of anger and frustration. If you just learn, sometimes you have to shake the dust off your feet. So I've done everything I can do. And lastly, <clears throat> there's the invitation of the holy. The invitation of the holy. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming speedily. Doesn't mean soon. It means when I come, everything will happen very quickly. It'll all be done fast. That's what it means. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. And my reward is with me. And the scripture gives us a wonderful little invitation in verse 17. The response to the announcement that he's coming, the spirit and the bride say come. Notice that's the spirit and the church together. It's one voice, one come. The spirit which has been brooding over the church and brooding over the world says, oh, Jesus, come. I'm tired of working with that mess of people down there at Calvary Baptist Church on the corner of Peace Haven and Country Club Roads. Come. The Spirit says come. And the church's response to Jesus' announcement is, come on, Lord Jesus. Many churches close their Lord's Supper service by saying together, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. So the Spirit says come, and the bride says come. And what happens? Verse 17, let him who thirsts come. And whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Come is one of God's favorite words. Did you know that? God said to Noah, Noah, you start building that ark and then tell the people to come and get in the ark. Moses was in the middle of the idolatrous orgy of the children of Israel, said, who would come and stand beside me and serve the Lord? Joshua said, come. Who will come and choose to follow Christ? Isaiah said, come now and let us reason together. Chapter 55, ho, everyone that thirsteth, 
Come and buy meat without price and drink without cost. And Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And suffer the little children to come unto me. I love that word, come. I love to get invitations. Wouldn't you rather have invitations and rejections? Come, come, come. And everything about it, about this passage, says that the redeemed of God echo back the announcement of Jesus. Come. Now is the time for you to partake of the water of life freely, whoever thirsts. A man was lost in the North African desert. And he found a man and he said, give me water, give me water. And the man said, all I have to give you is a shirt. The man said, I don't want a shirt. I just want water. He went a little farther in the desert in the scorching heat. He'd taken off virtually all of his clothes. And he came to another man and he said, Sir, what, do you have some water to give me? And the man said, No, all I have to give you is a tie. He went a little farther and he came to an oasis and there was a guard at the gate to the oasis. And he said, can I get in for some water? And the man said, no, you've got to have a shirt and tie to get in. <laughs> you know what's going to grieve me about heaven? Is that some people are going to stand there and say, oh, I'm desperately lost and I need to get in. And they left the shirt and tie behind you can't get in except through Christ. You say, oh, I don't want to pay any attention. I'll do whatever I want to. I don't need Bible study. If I go to church twice a year, I get enough. I'll get the rest of my blessing off of Fox Network. You ignore the Bible and you ignore Jesus and you lose your tie and shirt and there's no entrance to heaven. He that is unjust will be unjust still. You've got to come God's way. And some people are going to miss the truth along the route. And at the end, there's no entrance. Don't take the written or the living Word of God lightly. It is the only way to be saved. It is the invitation. It has the invitation, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.